grace is that miracle of God in which He, because of His own character, extends favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. It's not just unmerited favor. It's favor that we deserve the opposite of. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are there greater reasons for which God, in salvation, redeems an individual for more than just the good of the individual? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 13 for us of a series titled, This Is Your Life. In Ephesians chapter 2, God not only tells you what He's doing in salvation, He actually tells you why. Today, you'll discover exactly why God acted to rescue you. And you may be shocked to find out God's reasons for rescuing you are not primarily about you. His great plan of salvation is far more grand. In a manner of speaking, His plan is much bigger than you. There are cosmic reasons that God acted to rescue you from sin. What are they, and how do they impact your life and world around you? Let's find out as we join our teacher now with today's study on The Word Unleashed. Our culture is really defined by ancient philosophies. We'd like to think that we are the carvers of our own fate, the makers of our own destiny, but in reality, we and the thoughts of the people around us are shaped by ancient ideas. It was the Greek philosopher Protagoras who wrote, Man is the measure of all things. He was the father of moral relativism. There is in that statement, man is the measure of all things, the ultimate statement of human autonomy. Man is in control of everything. He is the measure of everything. He determines the rightness or wrongness of everything. Man is, in fact, at the very center of the universe. Fortunately, in the ancient world, even the Athenians, the city from which Protagoras came, those who were attracted to all kinds of different philosophies, who were called in the book of Acts seed pickers, looking for this and that a new idea, even the Athenians had enough sense to throw Protagoras out of town and to burn all of his works. They understood that that was not the basis for a culture. But sadly, the ideas that Protagoras promoted are alive and well in 21st century America. The child, the stepchild, if you will, of his philosophy is humanism, secular humanism. And humanism continues to assure us that man is the measure, that he is the center of the universe. In everyday language, if we could reduce it to its most common denominator, we would say, it really is all about me. There's a reason that that whole concept resonates so deeply in all of us. It's part of the fallen human condition. It's part of who we are as sinners to think that the universe revolves around us. In fact, we can even be tempted to think that the universe exists for us. A recent bestseller 
said just that. The secret so heavily recommended by Oprah Winfrey. The universe exists for us. What does the Bible say? Colossians chapter 1 says, All things were made for Jesus Christ. This world doesn't exist for us. The universe doesn't exist for us. It exists for Christ. We come to the conclusion, as we start with this base of man as the center, we come to the conclusion that even God exists for us. That God's chief end is to make me happy and to meet all my needs. Instead, Scripture declares that God's chief end is His own glory. We're prone as Christians to even take that secular idea of man as the measure, man as the center, as the determiner of all things, and to believe that God saved us for us, that our salvation is primarily about us. But that's not what the Bible says. Remember Ephesians chapter 1? Look back. It's been many months, I know, since we were there. But Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, He predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, ends with the fact that the Spirit has been given to us to the praise of His glory. Listen, God worked in salvation to get glory to Himself. In chapter 2, Paul continues this great theme. He returns to this great theme, and he develops it even more deeply. In chapter 2, verse 7, we will discover in a single verse what is, frankly, mind-bending and life-altering in its implications and its application. We've been studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In this paragraph in this real really sentence in the Greek text Paul describes how God rescued us a rescue that was entirely his work from beginning to end and Paul develops this whole idea of this rescue or this change that has occurred in three simple and basic movements through these 10 verses the first part or movement is in verses 1 through 3 Paul rehearses what we were what we were when God found us. And it's not a pretty picture. We've looked at it in great detail. We were dead and we were in slavery and we were the enemies of God and we were only awaiting His wrath to fall on us and our sin. That's what we were. The second movement comes in verses 4 through 6 and it's what God did. In response to what we were, let's look at what God did. And last week we looked and great detail at what it was that God did. It's described in the three verbs in verses 5 and 6. He made us alive, He raised us up, and He seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. We looked at what those mean, and they are so profound and so deep. Taken together, God intends to tell us through the Apostle Paul here that He intervened to rescue us from sin, to make us new, to deliver us from slavery and to make us slaves of God and to deliver us from wrath and make us His eternal sons already, as it were, present in heaven with Christ. That's what God did. Today we come to the third part of God's great dramatic plan. 
We've seen what we were. We've seen what God did. In verses 7 through 10, we see why God did it. Notice the two little words that begin verse 7. So that, to this end, for this purpose. Let me read for you these verses, verses 7 through 10. In light of all that God has done, in light of who we were, here in verse 7, Paul comes to why. So that, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God had a plan. Chapter 1, verse 10 tells us God had this great eternal plan. And behind that plan, there were specific reasons God acted. Often, a master doesn't tell his slaves what he's doing. He simply tells them what they need to do, and they fulfill their little function, not knowing the bigger scheme. But as John MacArthur pointed out when he was here, we have a most unusual master. We are slaves of Jesus Christ, and our master lets us in on what he's doing. John chapter 15, he says, No longer do I call you merely slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master's doing. But I have called you also friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Although we are slaves of Jesus Christ, our Lord takes us into his confidence, makes us his friends, and he tells us what he's doing. And amazingly, sometimes, as he does here in Ephesians chapter 2, he not only tells us what he's doing, he even tells us why. Why? Today, as we come to these verses, God tells us exactly why it is that he acted to change us. That why it is he acted to rescue us. And here's the shocking thing. God's reasons for rescuing us are not primarily about us. That rocks our world. Because we still think selfishly and as humanists. Don't misunderstand. Of course, God loves individuals. We're described as his sheep that he knows by name whom he takes to himself as a shepherd would an individual sheep. There is an intimacy in our relationship to God. Of course, that's true. But when the apostle explains what really lay behind God's plan, it was much bigger than any individual. It was much bigger than you, and it's much bigger than me. There were cosmic reasons that God acted to rescue you from sin. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul identifies three reasons that God acted in sovereign grace to rescue you from sin. If you're a Christian this morning, this is why God did it. This is what God had in mind. This was the motive for which he acted Today, I want us to look just at the first of these three reasons in verse 7. Because it is the greatest and the grandest reason of all. God acted to rescue you in Christ 
in order to display His own glory. God acted to rescue you to display His own glory. In one of the most famous soliloquies in English literature, in the play As You Like It, Shakespeare wrote these words, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Shakespeare was right. He was right in ways that he could not have imagined and in ways that he never intended. The world is a stage. This planet that we call home, this pale blue dot in the Milky Way galaxy hurling through the blackness of endless space is a stage. It's the greatest stage in the universe because it's the stage on which the eternal God has put His character on display. Look at the word show. Verse 7. In order that in the ages to come He might show. It's a very interesting Greek word. It literally means to display, to give proof to demonstrate something either by argument or act, to make something evident and obvious, to put it on display is the idea. God is engaged in a grand demonstration on a cosmic, universal, eternal scale. And He's doing it right here on this planet we call home. This is the purpose of God. Francis Folks writes, the purpose of God for His church, that's for us, as Paul came to understand it, reaches beyond itself, beyond salvation of individuals, beyond its unity and fellowship, beyond even its witness to the world. The church is to be the exhibition to the whole creation of the wisdom and love and grace of God in Christ. William Hendrickson, the great commentator, writes, God's purpose in saving His people reaches beyond them. His own glory is His chief end. God has a grand demonstration, and it's happening right here in the earth. Now, there are several important questions about this demonstration, this grand demonstration that God's involved in, that Paul answers here in verse 7. I want us to see the questions that he answers and then see his answers to them. The first question, as we think about this sort of grand demonstration that God's putting on, is when. When is this exhibition? When is this display? Well, notice he begins verse 7, so that for this purpose God has rescued you, He's saved you, He's changed you for this reason. And then he says, in the ages to come. In the coming ages. What does Paul mean? Well, there are three possibilities, and commentators take various approaches to this. Some would say that he means the ages from the first century when Paul wrote this letter until the return of Christ. The ages, if you will, the periods of time between when Paul lived and when Christ returns. 
And certainly God is displaying himself now. Chapter 3, verse 10 makes that clear. He has made now made known certain things about himself. A second view says that, no, it's not talking about now. It's not talking about until Christ returns. It's talking about after Christ returns. And God also will display certain things after Christ returns. Chapter 1, verse 21, refers to the age to come. This age and the age to come, meaning the age after Christ returns. So God is going to put certain things on display then. But there's a third view that I think is the best, the best way to understand what Paul is saying here. And that is, it includes both of the first two. Paul was standing in the first century, and he was looking, as it were, at time as it unfolds, and he was saying, in all the coming ages, literally translated, he says, in the ages, the ones coming and coming and coming. He uses the present tense. The ages that just keep on coming. So It's really a very picturesque expression, because it pictures time this time in which we live, and the time in which Paul lived, as the shoreline onto which breaks wave after wave after wave. And the individual waves don't represent days or decades or even centuries, but each wave as it breaks on the shoreline represents another age. And as another wave comes, another age. If you look out from the shore at the horizon as if you were standing on a beach looking at the horizon to the vanishing point, all you can see is more waves. That's the picture behind this expression. That's how it is with eternity. Age after age after age hits the shore of time. That's when God is going to put himself on display. He started when Christ came and it will never end. Wave after wave, age after age, God will be putting himself on display. F.F. Bruce writes, In the limitless future, as age succeeds to age, the crowning display of God's grace will ever be his kindness to his redeemed people. When is this exhibition? It started with Christ and it will never end. There's a second question that Paul answers here, and that's, what does God display? What exactly is the demonstration intended to show about God? Well, he puts this very clearly, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. God intends to put his grace on display. I wish you'd never heard the word grace. I wish you'd never heard it defined. I wish this were the very first time I were explaining this truth to you because we are so prone as human beings to become so accustomed to things that we lose the sense of wonder, the sense of grandeur, the sense of majesty that comes with certain concepts. And grace stands at the head of the line. You know what grace is? If I were to ask you to define grace, how would you define it? The most common definition would be unmerited favor. And that's okay as far as it goes, but that's such a weak definition of grace. Let me give you a couple that resonate in my own heart. A.W. Pink writes, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. 
A.W. Tozer writes, it is God's goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by His grace that God credits merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. Grace is that miracle of God in which He, because of His own character, extends favor to those who deserve exactly the opposite. It's not just unmerited favor. It's favor that we deserve the opposite of. And grace is the truth by which God, as A.W. Tozer said here, credits merit where there was none and declares no debt where there had been one before. You see, grace is what stands behind what we talked about even in the conference, that wonderful truth of imputation, of crediting. God, in a miracle of grace, credits my sin to Christ and treats Christ as if He lived my life. And in a miracle of grace, He credits Christ's perfect life to me and to my account and treats me as if I had lived that life. That is grace. That is the heart of grace. That is the most powerful display of grace. It's God doing good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. This is God's character. In Exodus chapter 34, when he, when he displays himself to Moses, he says, I am gracious. I am full of grace. I am by nature one who delights in doing good to those who deserve the opposite. In 1 Peter 5.10, Peter calls him the God of all grace. God, the Father, is the fountain of grace. Jesus Christ is the channel through which that grace flows to us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes that grace and applies it to our hearts. Now we stand in grace, Paul says in Romans 5.2. You know what that means? We stand in grace. That means we live in an atmosphere of grace. We, we actually breathe, as it were, grace we live in a kingdom where grace rules. God constantly overwhelms us with kindness that we not only do not deserve, but that we deserve the opposite of. Notice, though, in Ephesians 2, he doesn't say just God's grace. He says the riches are the wealth of His grace. And not just the wealth of His grace, but the surpassing wealth of His grace. Paul adds term to term to try to get us to comprehend what he's talking about. This word surpassing, it's translated in English as surpassing, is a very interesting word. It's the word hooperbalo in the Greek text. It literally means to throw over or beyond something, to surpass in throwing. You may recognize the word because we get an English word from it. Hooperbalo, we get the English word hyperbole from it. When it's used figuratively, it's not talking about literally throwing something. When it's used figuratively, it expresses the highest ultimate degree. Whatever it's talking about is beyond comparison, it's beyond comprehension, it is beyond measurement.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part 14 for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, God's plan of salvation is indeed cosmic in scope, impacting all of human history. Isn't that true? It is truly cosmic in scope. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 3 when he refers to the plan of redemption as the plan of the ages. It is the plan that God has instituted in eternity past and has pursued throughout human history, and he will bring it to its full and complete fruition as every person on whom he set his love, every person for whom Christ died, will eventually come to complete perfection and dwell in the presence of God forever. That is truly a great drama of redemption, and it's worked out on our behalf. So it's cosmic on the one hand, but friend, thank God it's individual as well. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.